Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's February, and per tradition, we like to bring you the most romantic of horror films. Right, and this time we're bringing you Possession. Possession. Possession! Possession! Uh, yeah, so seemingly the theme this month is breakup, or, um, you know, cursed by your ex in some sort of way. Right? Right, yeah. This is all about the destruction of love rather than the creation of it. So maybe we got it wrong, but here it is. That's how we do it here at the Film Flamers. We're all about destruction. The destruction of love. Also, you can blame me for whatever we say about possession because I've been wanting to watch this movie for most of my horror-watching life and finally got a chance to. And... um, here it is. So this is kind of a hot take, too. Right. This is both of our first time. That's right. Mm. We're possession virgins, just in time for Valentine's Day. Well, Possession is a 1981 psychological horror drama film directed by Andre Zawofsky and written by Zawofsky and Frederick Tutin, starring Sam Neill mm. and Isabel Johnny. Oh. The plot obliquely follows a relationship between an international spy and his wife who begins exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking for a divorce. An international co-production between France and West Germany, Possession was filmed in West Berlin in 1980 and is Zuwowski's only English-language film. The screenplay was written during a painful divorce of Zuwowski from his wife. While not commercially successful either in Europe or the United States, with the latter only receiving a heavily edited cut on its initial release, the film eventually acquired cult status and has been more positively appraised in later years. Okay, listeners. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you. This is Possession. I've completed my job. That's why we want to rehire you. It's out of the question. And what would be the reason for your refusal? Family. Maybe all couples go through this. You have someone? Yes. Do you sleep with him? Yes. How long is it gonna last? I don't know. When I'm away from you, I think of you as an animal or a woman. And then I see you again, and all this disappears. You know, love isn't something you can just switch from channel to channel. Who is he?
Mark, played by Sam Neill, is a spy who returns home to West Berlin from a mysterious espionage mission to find that his wife, Anna, played by Isabella Johnny, wants a divorce. She will not say why, but insists it's not because she found someone else, and certainly not a mini-tentacled hentai porn demon dripping in bloody entrail juice. Mark reluctantly turns the apartment in custody of their young son, Bob, over to her. After recovering from a destructive drinking spree, he visits the apartment to find Bob alone, unkempt and neglected. When Anna returns, he stays with Bob, refusing to leave her alone with the child, but attempts to make amends. Anna leaves in the middle of the night. Mark receives a phone call from Anna's supposed lover, Heinrich, telling him that Anna is with him. The next day, Mark meets Bob's teacher, Helen, who inexplicably looks identical to Anna, but with green eyes. In old Berlin, it was easier to find colored contacts than actresses. <laughs> Mark, Mark visits and fights Heinrich the open-shirted, who beats him off. Hurt and feeling a certain kind of muffety, Mark then returns home where he beats off Anna before she flees into oncoming traffic for some reason. The next morning, they reconvene, for some reason, back at the apartment and have another hysterical argument during which they both cut themselves with an electric turkey knife. For some reason. Mark hires a private investigator to follow Anna and discovers that she has been keeping a second flat in a derelict apartment building. When the investigator discovers a bizarre mini-tentacled hentai porn demon in the bathroom, Anna kills him with a broken bottle. The gay lover of the now-dead detective goes to the flat where he finds the creature and his lover's dead body. Anna beats him off in a rage before stealing his gun and then shooting him to death. Anna continues her erratic behavior and recounts to Mark a violent miscarriage she suffered in the subway while he was gone. She claims it resulted in a nervous breakdown. During the miscarriage, she oozed blood and fluids from her orifices. She would have named it Bob 2. <laughs> Heinrich visits Anna at the second apartment and is shocked to discover the creature in the bedroom as well as a collection of dismembered body parts in her refrigerator. She attacks him by casually stabbing him with a knife while he just stands there, looking at her, and then runs away to a local bar. For some reason. Heinrich calls Mark and begs him to pick him up. Mark stops by Anna's apartment first and discovers the body parts. The many-tentacled hentai porn demon, however, is gone. Mark meets Heinrich at the bar where he murders him, for some reason, but stages it as an accidental death in the bathroom stall. He then sets Anna's apartment on fire before fleeing on Heinrich's motorcycle, passing a homeless person who jumps up and down at glee at the side of the burning apartment. <laughs> fire! At home, Mark finds Anna's friend Margie on the point of death as she emerges from the lift, bleeding from knife wounds. She dies, and he drags the body inside the apartment where Anna greets him, and the two have sex in the kitchen, for some reason. Afterward, he makes plans to cover up Margie's death. He then, somehow, discovers Anna having sex with a mini-tentacled hentai porn demon. Later, for some reason, Heinrich's mother phones Mark asking about her son. When he goes to meet with her, for some reason, she commits suicide by taking several many pills. For good reasons. <laughs> she is done with this film. The next day, as Mark wanders the street, his former business associates pressure him to rejoin them. He is evasive 
and returns to Marge's apartment to find it surrounded by police and his former employers. He stages a distraction, allowing someone to sneak away in his car, but he is wounded in the ensuing shootout. Fleeing on the motorbike, he has a horrific accident and races into a building where he is pursued by Anna, the police, and his business associates. Anna reveals the many-tentacled hentai porn demon, now fully formed as Mark's doppelganger. Mark raises his gun to shoot it, but he and Anna are gunned down by a hail of bullets from the police below. Bloodied and dying, Anna lies atop Mark and uses his gun to shoot herself. She dies in his arms, and he jumps to his death through the stairwell. Undaunted by all those bullets and stuff, the doppelganger flees through the roof. Later, Helen, that teacher they couldn't afford an actor for, is at the flat babysitting Bob when the doorbell rings. Bob implores her not to open the door, but Helen ignores him. From outside, the sound of sirens, planes, and explosions fill the air. Bob races through the flat into the bedroom where he floats in the bathtub, face down, drowning himself for some reason. The silhouette of Mark's doppelganger is seen from the frosted glass door. Helen stares, her eyes shining. Could she be a many-tentacled hentai porn demon too? Find out next time on who cares the end (laughs) oh (laughs) it's not very often that one gets to see a many tentacled hentai porn demon in film so um let's get into this right Possession premiered at the 34th Cannes Film Festival and was released in France on May 27, 1981, after an initial limited release in the UK. The film was banned as one of the notorious video nasties there, and in America it came out in a heavily edited 81-minute cut version. On Halloween 1983, having lost more than a third of its runtime, the distributor turned Possession into an eccentric body horror almost completely eliminating the main theme of the painful breakdown of marriage. This version was ridiculed by the American press. This is right around the time that David Cronenberg was having very similar movies, right? Like The Brood and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they were really trying to cash in on yeah. some of that, right? But that's a very, very cut movie. After a very modest reception in France, the film would go on to gross $1.1 million in the States against a budget of $2.4 million. Womp womp. Womp womp, indeed. I don't know. That could make some money. Obviously, it made, you know, $1.3 million. Yeah. I don't know how much marketing this, this movie had, if any. I guess we'll find out when we have to try to find a trailer. <sighs> yeah. Uh, Possession has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score at 78%. The site's consensus reads, quote, Blending genres as effectively as it subverts expectations, Possession uses powerful acting and disquieting imagery to grapple with complex themes. Yeah. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does do those things. Possession received lukewarm critical response when it was initially released in the summer of 1981. Derek Malcolm of The Guardian stated that while Zuwalowski Zuwalowski displayed talent and the special effects were unforgettable, the film itself was far too serious for its own good. Variety gave the film a positive review, praising the direction, symbolism, and pacing, writing, massive symbols, and unbridled brilliant directing, meld this disparate tale into a film that could get cult following, 
on its many levels of symbolism and exploitation. Harry Hahn of the New York Daily News alternately panned the film, awarding it one and a half out of four stars and writing that Johnny's prize-winning mad act is impossible to appraise because the film it's in is outlandishly unhinged as well. Just about any dialogue accompanying this mess would seem ludicrous. Here it does. The Philadelphia Daily News' Joe Baltake deemed the film a boringly camp, elegant attempt by a group of reputable French, German, and Polish filmmakers and assessed Johnny's performance as babbling, incoherent, yet arresting. <laughs> I would fully agree with that. I was fully arrested by her. Mm. But it is babbling. <clears throat> Chris Nelson of the prestigious podcast The Film Flamers said of the film, if you hired Kermit and Miss Piggy to play the leads, it wouldn't have been as over-the-top as this. Overrated Pablum. Oh my God. I love that one. I'm what a good and spot on review of this Muppety, Muppety film. <laughs> Sheer Muppetry. Uh, the Muppetry did win some important accolades. That's right. So at Cannes, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which of course is like the best thing, right? Right. And uh, it actually won Best Actress. Famously, in fact. Mm. So I know that Isabella Johnny was somewhat. Famous in Europe, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. And then her career kind of took off after this, but not on the States, really. Hmm. In the years following its release, Possession accrued a cult following. Writer Kim Newman considers Possession to be a kitsch film, noting Zwolski takes this film too seriously, but it's fun all the same. He goes mad with his swooping camera, has everything in shot painted in blue, and encourages the stars to attack their roles with a kind of stylized hysteria rare outside Japanese theater. Here, here. Hmm. The film is included in Sight and Sounds, the greatest films of all time list, where Michael Brook commented in 2011 as he was having a stroke. Although it's easy to see why it was pigeonholed as a horror film, its first half represents... What is one of the most viscerally vivid portraits of a disintegrating relationship yet committed to film, comfortably rivaling Lars von Trier's Antichrist, David Cronenberg's The Brood, and Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage? I don't know why this movie is being compared to this. Hmm. I mean, the themes are similar, I guess. Yes. But I don't know. The music video for Massive Attack's Voodoo in My Blood from 2016 pays homage to the subway scene with Rosamund Pike wearing a maxi dress and dancing wildly in a pedestrian underpass. Director Ringen Led- Ledwidge acknowledged the influence, calling himself a huge fan of Possession. I have never seen that music video. I had not either, but I included that because A, I like Massive Attack, and B, I like Rosamund Pike. Same, although I've never heard of that song. No, nor have I, but I want to kind of watch this video. I just listened to Mezzanine on repeat. Because it's the best. Yeah. So let's talk about our cast a little bit. We have to get this out of the way, right? Yeah. Starting with Isabel Ajani as Anna and, of course, the dual role of the teacher Helen for their son, Bob. So she was already a minor celebrity by this time in Europe with uh, one failed breakout in an American film. So she was in uh, The Driver in 1978, which failed, right? And so she kind of like skirted back to Europe. So obviously this role is super exhausting. We've talked a little bit about how Muppety this movie is. Yep. But it's super Muppety. Everyone talks about a certain subway scene and that's what it's all in the top tens or whenever you probably have seen this film mentioned, much like Exorcist 3's Jump Scare. This is the film's like big acting push, right? And I was kind of shocked to see that this, you know, you could almost not not pull it out of the movie because the acting all around this scene from beginning to end and even just the most simple of dialogue scenes is so over the top and Muppety 
everything is like super stylized emotionally. Yep. To a point that I've almost never seen that outside of Sesame Street. <laughs> you know? And so uh obviously that role was emotionally exhausting for Johnny, especially the subway scene. Uh, in one of the interviews, she said that it took her several years to recover from that performance, which Jay Hoberman called, quote, a veritable aria of hysteria. And it is. I feel like that's an appropriate way to describe that particular scene, right? It's it's an very aria very, of hysteria. <laughs> it's very famous. And I mean, a lot of people do talk about it when talk about possession. And so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Like, I've never seen clips of this movie. I really knew very little about it, except for the things that I have heard from other horror fans or online, right? And I will say that her performance in this is is really good. As over the yeah. top as it is, I feel like that, that, that critic who called it arresting or whatever is accurate. Like, I could not stop paying attention to Isabella Johnny in this movie and every scene that she's in. I almost feel like every other scene is probably better as far as her acting ability. Right. You I know, because like some of those dialogue scenes between those two where they have to be so over the top and all over the place, the blocking is crazy. Yep. The camera's just like following them around. They have to do insane things. There's a lot of wonders in this movie. And I feel like any of those would be much more complicated than what she ended up doing in the subway, which of course was like a night shoot and they did it in two takes. Well, and I, it's, she's so low in this. It's yeah. one of the few moments in the movie where it's just her on camera. Yeah. And what she's doing, for those of you who have not seen at least a clip of this, right. she's just writhing around, uh, you know, going crazy in the subway. And you're not sure what it is. Later, you find out, oh, she said she had like a miscarriage, you know, and you can mm-hmm. see all this ooze coming from her. But it's not just where you'd expect it to come from. It's coming from like all the other orifices as well. Right. So it's not really clear what's happening. You wonder, oh, maybe she is possessed, but that really actually never comes up. Right. So it's not clear like anything else in this movie is not mm-hmm. clear, but um, it's mostly just like, I guess, a miscarriage scene, but it's not really obviously a miscarriage scene. Well, I mean, like just like anything else in this movie, I feel like there's a lot of symbolism going on, like probably way, way too much. And like, while I have no problem with symbolism in film or literature or anything oh, I like love that symbolism, but this is, uh, if that was symbolism is kind of, and it's, I don't, I don't know that this was symbolism in that particular scene. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to call it, but I feel like symbolism, symbolism has to be accessible. It's not accessible. And that's exactly the problem yeah. with this. Like, I, I feel like that moment in this movie where she's like having this weird, like really physical mental breakdown. Yeah. Looks amazing. Right. I mean, and she looks amazing anyway. It's a she's, big acting moment, but it pulls right. you out. I don't know. I kind of disagree with that. Like I, I felt, I felt like I was getting somewhere with that character a little bit, but it just didn't explain anything. No. I don't, I mean like I, I wanted to see her do more than just like scream and cut herself with a Turkey knife before, you know? during and after that there was no, so what? It was just a really super physical moment. Yeah. You know, I mean, she was acting, you know, with her face the entire time and like sort of like thrashing her body around. And it was a really long. It was a little too long, maybe to, before yeah. it started to get to like the oozy parts. Yeah. And it was almost just like if you have a math equation for all of the emotion in this movie, like a typical conversation is going to be 10 times the normal emotion. Then what is a miscarriage going to look like? Right. So maybe that's what this is. It's just the result of the stylized emotion of this movie. Well, yeah. Versus symbolism. There is symbolism in this movie for sure, but I'm not sure this is one of them. I was starting to think, and maybe this is a huge reach, you know, like she was obviously unhappy in her marriage, right? Which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in this. Cause that's what this movie is about. 
Yep. Um, and I feel like it was not necessarily a, like a, a miscarriage of a child, but more like a miscarriage of yourself. You know what I mean? Like she was shaking her marriage out of her body and coming to the conclusions that she would later come to in the movie. Sure. Jan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's too much of a reach, but I mean, no, if, there, I if mean, it's, it's going to be symbolism of something, it would be that. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be, yeah, it could easily be that, but it could be cares, anything you want, right? Cause yeah. there, there is not accessible. You, all of it. The, the entire movie mostly is unaccessible. Yeah. But, uh, the director said there were two takes. Right. The scene was filmed at five in the morning when the subway was closed. I knew it was worth a lot of effort for a Johnny, both emotionally and physically, because it was cold there. It was unthinkable to repeat the scene endlessly. Most of what's left on the screen is the first take. The second take was made as a safety net, as it is customary when shooting in difficult scenes, for example, in case the laboratory spoils the material. Okay. Well, I mean, like, if the one direction she got was to, like, flail around, flail randomly. around crazily, yeah. then, I mean, got it. So, yep. I mean, overall, I think that she did a good job in this movie. And she has a dual role. She had a great job. I thought all yeah. the actors did a, an amazing job. I thought Sam Neill did an amazing job. Of course, Sam Neill, we've talked about before in Jurassic Park. Yep. And maybe at some point we'll we'll talk about him in, uh, in the Mouth of Madness. I'm sure we will. Right. Which is almost similar in a way as this. Um, as his performance here, strangely. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he plays Mark. Um, he was actually mostly unknown at that point. Right. Right now, he would be the much larger actor. But back then he was not right, and he described his role as the most extreme film that he'd ever made, uh, and he's quoted to say, "In every possible respect." And he asked, uh, and the director asked us things I wouldn't and couldn't go to now, and I think I only just escaped that film with my sanity barely intact. Good lord, what the hell was going on with that set? Well, you know? he had more to do than her in, in a way. Like he had, he had like these big freakout scenes, you know. Um, she did too. But he had a lot more dialogue as well compared as compared to her. And so I feel like they, they did a lot of like everything. If they're doing take after take after take, it's so heightened. It just takes a lot out of you. Yeah, and I can get that. And I, I would say like it's kind of hard for him because he has to like carry the movie on a sort of like grounded emotional level in a way yeah. that she does not with her characters. Yeah. You know? And even then, he's not doing much of that just because of the, the material itself is inaccessible. Yeah, it's like it's like reading poetry that was written in a language, but, you know, translated into english it does it just doesn't make sense when you read it right or, or watch it there's things going on in this movie and i'm like now what you know it's almost like a movie that was made by vulcans to imitate what they think of human emotion being so i mean if, if we're saying that like this movie was written from a tumultuous the divorce of the director like i don't know it's a really like over the top way to process your own emotions for things but I don't know. I feel like as far as the two characters go, like obviously we see more of Mark than we do of Anna and he's having the most like normal reaction to what I would think someone would have to a a breakup. Right. But it's like, if he is trying to convey the raw emotion, very stylized and accessible in that regard, Mm. that mirrors the real life divorce and break up of a relationship. I feel like other movies have done a much better job just thinking about like a marriage story with Scarlett Johansson and, and what's his face, you know, like that's a very subtle performance in many cases. And then one big blow up scene, you know, right. But it's right. much more devastating emotionally. Like than to me, this was because I'm constantly thinking of like, why are they, f- you know, freaking out? <laughs> These random, like, like, I don't know. Just like that whole, like 
uh, scene where he confronts her like in the restaurant at the cafe or something. Oh my god, he's, he like destroys throwing the whole tables thing. around or whatever, and it's just like what the fuck. And there's just weird details that don't matter for anything. Like he's a spy, and like it's like who wrote this? Like a like a fucking ten year old that went through a divorce or something. I don't understand. Essentially, it's like okay, <laughs> I and we're gonna get to like themes and things, and I'm and sure we'll talk about the director, yeah. but like it really feels like he's trying to process something by making this movie right but he is trying to do it in a weird way and we've talked and we've already said that he he had just gone through his his own right yeah so we've already talked about on this podcast before like taking themes and situations and applying them to like horror or genre films can sometimes make it easier for an audience to digest like the hardcore things that you're trying to say i don't think he accomplishes that in this movie. no and for something as accessible and normal as like a a divorce or a a breakup he doesn't have to do that no, it could very easily have told this story in some other way. Almost everyone on this planet can relate to that innately. You don't have to go out of your way to science fiction or horrorize it or genreify it, you know, to talk about it abstractly that we find so useful when coming to uncomfortable topics like terrorism. You know? Uh, what do you think about the rest of the cast in this movie? Because they were kind of like bit parts. Sure, they were all bit parts. So like, I don't even want to really mention um, them. <laughs> because I don't really know who they are, who they went on to to, to be. You know, we have the the neighbor Margit, who was actually played by a Margit. <laughs> okay. You know, we've got Heinz Bennett as Heinrich, who is probably the most heavy lifting. Yeah, and well, and I think that his others. character was like. <sighs> I was really enjoying some of the over-the-top, like, batshit, crazy Muppety moments. He's and, obviously an archetype. Yeah, and he was the best of that to me. Yeah. Like, he was just so uh, ridiculous. Like, everything he did physically, everything he said, like, it was like his dialogue was written to be profound, and it just came out sounding silly. And so every time that he was on screen, I was having the best time in this movie. Because he, like, randomly knows, like, Kung Fu and shit yeah and his mother kind of reminded me in this whole movie like filmed in Berlin and everything else it just reminded me of Suspiria a little bit yes and I wanted her to be like end up being like the mother of tears that was like pulling the strings from behind everything or that's something, right you know? yeah <laughs> um, it's so funny that you would say that because if you go to Amazon at the Hans Dons Academy <laughs> <laughs> uh, the customers also watched for this movie Suspiria is the very first thing and I was just like oh god like yeah. one movie is much better than the other but okay both versions are better than this movie uh, yeah I really liked the character of Heinrich. I, I don't know that it's like the acting. I think that it was just a silly, stupid, fun character. Yeah. For, and it, I don't think that that's what it was intended to be, but that's what it He was. serves a definite archetype for the other, the other man. That's right. Who also is betrayed. Yes. You know, and ultimately murdered, but. Which is know. almost like wish fulfillment at this point. This movie is batshit um, for some obvious and not so obvious reasons. But let's talk about that director a little bit. Um, you know, Andre Zawofsky. Uh, now he directed, he wrote the screenplay and, and adapted that screenplay and, uh, into a script and did the music. He did, he was all over this movie, well, which is why I think some of it doesn't really make much sense. The music is a little disjointed. Uh, there's a lot of interesting issues with this movie. Um, but he's a Polish director. He was, but he was actually born in Ukraine in 1940 and then he died in uh, 2016, but was able to go back to Poland which earlier in his career um, he was kicked out of because the second film, The Devil, from 1972, was banned in communist Poland. And he had to relocate to France and kind of restart. And so he's kind of breaking up with his home country. And then, of course, he had to break up with his his wife around this time. So it's very intentionally done 
at the wall, essentially the Berlin mm-hmm. wall, because it's just like that separation of East and West and the separation of a relationship. And they're always around walls and there's this modern apartment and there's this dilapidated warehouse. And there's all this dichotomy dualness happening in this movie and everything's kind of blue and everything has all just kind of on the nose. <laughs> Some of it is, you know, like, cause that's exactly what I thought while watching this. Cause he, he oftentimes will look out the window and he's like, he has his watch there where he keeps it for yep. some reason. And he's looking at the guards on the wall. And I was just like, okay, well that's kind of obvious when it comes to like the symbolism of his own breakup. Right. Mm-hmm. And the country that he lives in. Very intentional. But like then other parts of it, I'm like, well, why couldn't you be just as obvious as that? And you're like, sometimes you don't have to like, beat us over the head, but to at least make it. Well, and that symbolism comes with its own, easy baggage, to get. you know, like, and so it's just like more interesting that way, but it was just kind of a backdrop, which is fine. Right. That's not the worst part of this movie. No. It's one of the best parts of this movie. In fact, I might, I might argue, uh, I don't know the rest of his filmography really well. I have heard about on the silver globe, which is supposed to be like a batshit epic science fiction film from 1988 that Letterboxd is kind of in love with. So I need to go and check that out. But if that's like like this, anything like this, because people love this movie, then I probably will, you know, not enjoy it very much. I feel like Letterboxd is in love with this film. Like everyone's in love with this film. One of the reviews that I read on Letterboxd said, if you rate this movie lower than four stars, then you're just insane or don't understand film. And I'm like, I don't okay, think that's fair. You know, I because I'm the guy that's just like, oh, you didn't like green light? Go watch a fucking cartoon. You know, it's like I've had that attitude before as well, to a certain extent. But people can be in weird moods, and maybe this is one of those that you have to watch multiple, multiple times. But it's like I do feel like I get it, you yeah. Know? And I just don't. It's just not for me. I can, but I do understand why other people like it. I think it's a well-made movie. It's one of those where it's like I, it's not like lost on me. It's just not for me. I like when you're doing symbolism and stylization. I like it in a certain way aesthetically. Mm-hmm. I like it to be pretty, you know, I like it to be well done. Technically, I like, you know, things a little bit more grounded emotionally. You know, it's just the opposite of how I would stylize things. And so it's just not up my alley. I mean, if I had to choose between like watching this movie again or watching Skin of a Wrinkle, I would pick this. Oh, sure. I mean, mean, so it depends, though. Yeah. Like I I shouldn't even like compare those two movies because they're two very, very different things. But I don't know. Based upon this one is a movie. (laughs) Yes. At least one has dialogue, (laughs) you know, Um, uh, just based on this movie. I don't know that I would want to watch anything else from his filmography. Like, I don't know. But if something is batshit and epic in science fiction, you know, then sure. I I might give that a chance. But yeah, if if he is continuing to make movies and batshit is fine. I'm okay with that descriptor for film. But if he's continuing to make movies that are like unaccessible, right, or like weird for weird's sake, yeah, then nah, like not for me. It was almost like he was trying to make an abstract film based off of the feeling of his own divorce, and I get that, you know. Um, I just didn't like it. <laughs> People process how they process. You I mean, know, like I said, Skin and Brink, I give it a five star for a student film, you know, right. for an experimental thing, but for, for as like a functioning movie. One star. Well, and you can't rate movies like that. No. You can't be like, oh, well, they're just students. You know what I mean? Or, oh, he's just processing his divorce or whatever, and this is the way that he does it. Yeah. Like, you you can't really do that. Like, ultimately, whenever you're making art, you have to be able to give it to the world to digest in certain ways. And sometimes I feel like people, film critics or even, like, film lovers will say, like, oh, this movie's amazing because everybody else does. You know what I mean? Or 
because they feel it's just contrarian enough, you know, like, yeah, that's you know? true. Or if they feel like it's not popular enough or it's not popular at all. And most people haven't seen it. It's contrarian enough to get on that bandwagon. That's right. There's a lot of psychology involved in rating things and liking things. True. And well, I don't, I don't attempt to even know what that's about, but it's like forming a club. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, like, Oh, well, you know, I'm sure I'm in my clubs. Yeah. Know? I mean, same fully, you know, but like, certainly I'm in some nostalgia clubs. <laughs> oh, I, my boner is strong with lots of movies that are actually full on terrible, you know, but I'm like, no, what are you talking about? It's a great movie. Yeah. But I, I don't know that there's any movie that I would just stop and like die on a hill and be like, no, you're completely wrong. Well, like beauty art is in, you know, is in the eye of the beholder sometimes. Yeah. Right. So it's like, if we are trying to critique a movie to, recommend if not just to analyze but also to possibly recommend to our listeners Mm -hmm. that's where i have to like look at it from a general audience perspective or at least our audience perspective and see what i want to say and those are the times when i can give skin and rank you know like a one or a two star or you know some of these others how interested are you in watching this really heavily heavily edited 81 minute version no i just don't care yeah i mean i i wouldn't go out and seek it you know but I I'm kind of curious as to what it flows like. I would like a remake of this to make it because I feel like there's a lot of gold to mine here, especially yeah. at the end with the kind of the the importance of things. I think things get a little Damien-esque or apocalyptic or even when evil lurks type mm-hmm. of situation going on, you know, and it's kind of hinted at, but that's kind of getting into a mythology that's besides the point of this movie, which is about divorce essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, the theme, like we've already talked about uh, the things we don't really like, which is like the making of this movie versus, you know, and some of the fluff and the inaccessible stuff. But the acting has been really great. And we've talked about the symbolism enough that I think that's another really good thing about this movie for the most part. Right. The main theme being love and marriage. Right. The complicated and sometimes bipolar emotions of a breakup. That's true. I really like that you would say bipolar for that. In fact, I'm going to open up a beer while we talk about the bipolar emotions of a breakup. Yeah, because I mean, it's just like this merry-go-round of I loved this person. I hate this person. I need to drum up my hate to, to separate from this person to get that bravery. But I also still love them. And I see the things that I loved about them. Those things that still exist. You know, it's like not one of those clean breaks, whereas obviously you're escaping from someone that's evil or has changed or something. But from someone out of the blue that it's just, you've grown apart or like, there's just something how there is that infidelity and there's all these weird feelings of loving. And then you have a, a child in that, you know, and you have obligations and parenthood and you have this co-parenting that needs to happen. And so you're very much still partners and it just complicates everything. Well, and I think that like love and marriage and breakups are complex in general. You know what I mean? Like it takes two people to create a, a relationship and it takes two people to sort of break it apart. And I think oftentimes, like, the reasons for those are very, very mundane. And I don't think this movie is any different than that. I think the reasons that these people are breaking up on the surface are super mundane, right? Like, he was on an assignment for an unspecified long amount of time. Like, we don't know how long he was gone, really. No, we don't. And that would have been helpful, right? Right. Because at this point, we know that she was um, – we, we know that she was unfaithful in one regard. She even asks him if he was unfaithful and he says the truth is not really. Yeah. So really, and that's his judgment. So who knows? She could have been dealing with his infidelity for years. 
And who gets to decide? It's you know? kind of alluded yeah. to. And then, uh, again, not told. It's not super accessible, the history of these people. Uh, you can see that his stance is on his perspective. For the most part, he doesn't see himself 100% guiltless because he doesn't shoot Sam Neill as 100% guiltless. And he doesn't write him that way either, but he's still kind of the hero. you know. And so we show that he's probably guilty of it, but the woman is even more guilty of it. And then it's alluded that she also uh, was was cheating on him with this demon thing, but some critics don't necessarily believe that the demon thing was real and that we are looking at her own psychosis. I would more agree with that because I, I feel like when she's trying, she has this whole like monologue where she's looking into a camera that's being shot by Heinrich after this really weird ballet scene and <laughs> where she's like literally like torturing children. And she's talking about like sister faith and things like that. Right. And I feel like everything that came out of her body. And I, I think we can assume that this many tentacled hentai porn demon came out of her body and is part of her and eventually becomes her soon-to-be ex-husband. We don't even know that, right? But I have to argue that in, within the narrative of this movie that it is real because of what happens at the end. It becomes a doppelganger, mm-hmm. right? You know? And so I don't know. Like It's what she wanted from him, and then he eventually finds a doppelganger of her, and it's what he wants from her. Yes. You know? That's exactly right. Right. So it's like there's this rabid infidelity, and then the many tentacled hentai porn demon re- representing that. And I feel like you know, and that's the thing between them, right? Yeah. It's just like personified in this symbol, which is, you know, kind of exhausting. Um, and so I wanted to ask, you know, is this just another heightened archetype of the other man or another woman, right? Outside of Heinrich or whatever his name was. Uh, or is this an examination of the inevitable feeling of being replaced as it's becoming their doppelganger, right? Like when you're intentionally break up with someone but they find someone new there's still that little bit of i was replaced even if you were the one that wasn't cheated on or something you know is there a little bit of jealousy there it's like did they trade up do they trade down is a reflection of you because you were with them right and so it's just yet another symbol when that monster becomes a doppelganger and uh in the case of the teacher helen uh is this seeing your loved one everywhere or finding a superior version um, she's gentle, but she doesn't demand anything from him. She's like the ideal housewife, right? Just That's like right. you said, they're both versions, you know, the strong stoic one that needs you always around, you know, mm-hmm. with that monster guy that becomes his doppelganger, you know? And so it's, uh, it's really interesting symbolism there and kind of powerful symbolism, but only in retrospect and thinking about the film during the narrative of it, it's kind of trash. Yeah. You really have to stop and digest this movie a little bit. And I'm really, really glad that we watched this movie and had a little bit of time to think about it. Cause honestly, some of these things, like I, I really didn't think about, I did think about like the dual nature of the people that they found that yeah. are very similar to, or look very similar to the one that they are leaving. Right. Like she has to take care of that many tentacled hentai porn demon and he kind of is around more often and needs her. Right. And he didn't. He was gone for a very long time. And when he comes back, he really didn't need her to do anything in their life. And she kind of wants that. I mean, she's a mother. Sure. But you also want to take care of your spouse sometimes. It's weird. Yeah. There's yeah. like some weird, dirty 
not one-to-one type of stuff going on here. Some of this is like just unbridled rage and, and this director dealing with his emotions, I think. And I think some of the things involving that monster, that creature, right, are meant to be like very, very shocking. And I know that like that final scene where the monster is like having sex with her, right? Like it, it didn't show it long enough to be shocking. And also like, I just, I knew what was going to be happening at some point. You're expecting that monster to be like fucking this woman at some point in this movie. Like, and then there it is. Everyone does something. I wrote like angry poetry after a couple of breakups, you know, yeah. like doing some fantasy in my head about who they were and what they were and how small they had become, you know, and things like that. But, you know, like this is almost the equivalent of this director, like being an artist and angrily slapping paint on a canvas, yeah. you know, to, to draw his significant other in unflattering light at the same time, displaying his own emotions on the canvas. That's exactly true. And this, this, this movie is just seeing that in living color. Yeah. It's like you're, you're watching a movie where someone said, the only reason I'm making this is really like not for an audience, but for one specific person to see like, Oh, I hope that she goes and watches this movie and understands everything I'm going through. Yeah, right now. It's like, you know, Cool. Hope she sees this, bro. Yeah. You know, and the rest of us are like, okay, you know, why don't you just go write on black paper with black ink, you know, and just, I don't know, spank her in a moppet. Yeah. But instead there's a moppet spanking her. I don't, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying that he didn't make a movie that, that doesn't have multi layers and things like that. But again, and I think this is what we've said all throughout this episode so far. It's a fever that, dream of a divorce. Yeah. It's a fever <laughs> dream of a divorce. That's not accessible to anybody, you know? And like, just like anyone trying to explain their emotions to you about what they're going through, it may or may not come across, but my God, like he could have tried a little harder to make it I better yeah this is a a very interesting painting that i can stop in the gallery just to use that metaphor a little bit longer (laughs) and go huh and then move on and move on to the next painting yeah exactly (laughs) like we will finish this episode this means something to someone and move on (laughs) to the next episode the next movie you know and and there it's perfectly fine again like if you are listening to this episode and you love possession like that is great you know like i'm glad that you found a movie that you like but i mean I had this movie built up in my head so much just based on like listicles as much as I hate that word yeah. and people on social media talking about like how good it is and how hard it was to find for such a long period of time in the United States. Yeah. It wasn't until recently that you could find it streaming. And for what reason? No reason. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think it was that popular. You know, but I mean, just like we were talking about earlier. It's not shocking, really. It's not, but it, it, it could be just like too hard to find enough to make people like, like you said, contrarian to say like, it's really, really good. Like people finally got their hands on it and they're like, oh my God, it's amazing. You know what Maybe, I mean? I don't know. And I was excited that it was brought to streaming. I was glad when it came to Shudder. And that's why we're talking about this movie right now. And maybe you know? we're just a little bit angry at it because we wanted it to be better. We wanted to be one of those people that were like, oh, my God, it's so good. You have to see it. More that's people right. have to see it. But it's just not that just wasn't the case for me. And it's kind of rare that movies like this make any sort of like top rating for me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't mind a weird film, you know. But more often than not, I dislike them. Yeah. And so maybe I should have done a little bit more research. But uh. I feel like there's so many other movies that are that tell the story better and more nuanced and much more like attractively, like emotionally. Like for me, like I already mentioned, a marriage story like really hits me in the in the chest. You know, and then like if you want to go into like the the heightened like love hate bipolarness of it all, you know, into a place of almost comedy, watch War of the Roses mm-hmm. with Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. 
A hundred percent. That movie is an amazing breakup movie. The thing is, is that I don't like, I don't like breakup movies. I don't like divorce movies. I actively feel anxious when people on screen are fighting for long periods of time. Or you could even talk about it and do something else like Spielberg and E.T., you know, or Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. I would say that some of my favorite breakup or divorce movies are comedies. You know what I mean? Like, I really like fucking Legally Blonde. I kind of like it when there's a clear person that needs comeuppance in a relationship. You know what I mean? First Wives Club. First Wives Club. (laughs) Exactly. The thing is, is that in real life, breakups are not that cut and dry. There's no clear person sometimes that, you know, is is clearly in the wrong and the other person is 100% right. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. No, but I like the breakup movies that are. Yeah. You know, but that's just like me wishing that life would be more perfect, I guess. So, yeah. Do you have some fun facts for me? I hope so. I have a few. Okay. Um, so in 1976, Zawoski divorced actress Margarita Brownick. You recalled how he once returned home late in the evening and found his five-year-old son, Xavier, who is now a director, by the way, alone in the apartment, smeared with jam after his wife had left him alone for several hours. This scene was directly reflected in possession. My God, like directly. Yep. And this is one of the the not to belabor our point, (laughs) but he clearly had something to say. He was clearly feeling a certain kind of way. Yeah. So this is the one moment in this movie that I got actually mad at that woman. I wasn't mad at her infidelity. You know what I mean? I was mad that she was being a bad mom. Yeah. You know, but I don't think that he was a great dad either. Yeah. So they're both wrong. But when he came to that apartment and again, like that, co- that kid could have been there for days for all we knew. Like, but I was just like, what the fuck? Yeah. You know? Okay. Uh, so next up the role of uh, what's her face? Anna uh, almost Anna. went to Judy Davis. Really? Whereas Judy Davis played uh, Judy Garland. That's right. In uh, that TV movie about her life. And uh, she played the older version. And then of course, later on she was in uh, ratchet. Mm-hmm. Uh, stealing peaches i love judy davis <laughs> judy she's davis is awesome. such a good actress uh so yeah she's been on american horror story not not horror story but uh, all of the surrounding stuff like feud and stuff mm-hmm. like that i oh yeah she played someone in uh she was the Betty reporter yeah yeah uh so this is the thing is that i know that isabella johnny is a celebrated actress right we we know her from movies but i swear to god i could sit here right now and i couldn't name anything else that she's on me either. Nope. Which is sad. Yep. I think she's mostly in French films and other things. Yeah. I think. Uh, Sam Waterston was considered for the male lead. Of course, this is the actor from Law and Order and Grace and Frankie with the crazy caterpillar eye- eyebrows. Yeah, I can't. I mean, younger Sam Waterston, I'm trying to picture him. He's like, oh, I am from film, but like, I don't know. Woof. Okay, good choice with uh, Sam Neill, though. Yeah. The, the better Sam was chosen. Uh, a number of critics deny the creature with tentacles and physical reality. It may be a reflection of Anna's psychosis, the product of Mark's inflamed consciousness, unable to accept his wife's betrayal or a kind of revenge of the director traumatized by his own divorce from his ex-wife, except that Heinrich exists in the movie, yep. right? So it's just muddy. It's mess. I don't agree with the critics there. I think it's real, especially because it becomes the doppelganger. Yeah. And it's there. It's physically interacting with other characters in the film. Yep. And not just like the bit. other. Although she's mostly doing all the killing, but yeah, yeah. I mean, but like that 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 creature exists. Like people see it, and it's at the end of the movie. So yeah, when so, both of the main characters are dead, so it's not anyone's perspective at that point. I and I'm not saying that the creature was not born, 
because of her psychosis or something like that. But that's like, it could be living psychosis. It could be Cthulian. It could be like some sort of, you know, Indian burial ground. I don't fucking know. It's all the things. I just don't want to like spend the time to make my head hurt trying to figure out why it exists. Just, it does. And we'll we'll find out on next week's episode on who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, trying to classify possession, critics drew parallels with Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Yeah. David Cronenberg's The Brood, as I mentioned several times before. The genre of the film is still a matter of controversy. Speaking of which, I think you're going to ask a question. I will. We will do that. Mm -hmm. We will be asking that question. Roman Polanski's Repulsion is an excellent film. And David Cronenberg's The Brood is also an excellent film. Both of which I would say are far superior to this. So, with that being said... Is Possession a horror movie? Yes. Yes. In ways that Polanski's Repulsion and Cronenberg's The Brute are also horror movies. Like, there's a fucking tentacled monster having sex with a woman in this movie. Yes. There's lots of blood. There's lots of violence. Oh, yeah. Uh, There are complex themes that are being expressed through supernatural and just creepy elements. Like, it's a horror movie. I don't know why people would find the need to say that it's hard to classify the genre of this film. There's too much symbolism to be a horror movie. Yeah. It's the horror ghetto talking. It's like critics are, are... That are falling in love with it don't want to call out a horror because they believe in the horror ghetto. Yeah, it's a drama. It's a psychological so they need to shut the fuck up. It's a psychological drama with it's a, a fucking Cthulian monster. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See, that's when you should say sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. <laughs> there you go. Were you scared while watching uh, Possession? No. Yeah, I wasn't either. Nope. Scared for my soul, maybe. <laughs> you know? Scared for the time that I lost. Scared for the time that I lost, yes. <laughs> but I will say, though, because we're going to get to ratings in a minute, and I I feel like our experience watching it together was a lot of fucking fun. It was, but it was just like, I was actually scared that I was like, am I like losing it? Am I like under or over medicated? Like, I was losing the plot. Like, I was like, this is like, i not really understanding the dialogue. I wish we had turned on uh subtitles subtitles yeah. like, i couldn't understand like i didn't understand like who was who as far as like the the detectives that were running around and i didn't understand until the synopsis that the second guy was the detective's lover who was gay like obviously they were a gay couple well <laughs> i know i feel like we talked about that during the movie didn't we i mean like i don't i don't know it's such a fucking fever dream like, yeah i don't I was like, I mean, losing it while I was watching this movie. I was like, am I just dumb? I feel like once I figured out that that was his lover, something he had said earlier, because he was looking for that detective and he was like, well, he could have just gone with a bunch of whores or something. And I was just like, oh, I was like, she's mad at her husband. Come <laughs> on. And he goes to look for him. But yeah, I, I don't, there's, a, there's too much going on and not enough explanation for things. And that's really, really terrible um, and could have influenced our ratings. So mm. out of five stars, what would you give Possession? Well, I originally gave it one star because I was outright angry at it. Yeah. Um, but then I really thought I digested some of the symbolism and things like that. And I appreciated some of the symbolism more and more. Um, the first time I gave it a one star because of the acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought was that that garnered it at least one full star, and so now I think I doubled my rating. I doubled my rating to two stars. <laughs> two stars. I hate the way this movie was filmed. Also, yeah, the, the camera is a fucking mess in this movie, and it's like he was a stage director who just like got handed a camera and was like go, and he is no worse than Wells. Mm-hmm. He cannot move that camera to save his life in a non janky way, and that again is like an artistic and aesthetic eye of the beholder kind of situation it just wasn't for me 
I like my epics smooth. I liked the camera to be uh, a character, right? And the, the camera was not a character in this movie. It was everything but. It was too intentional and not intentional enough in some ways. And I, I just didn't like the look of this thing. I didn't like how he he filmed it. I didn't like the sound, the dialogue. Um, I didn't like how it was written. I thought the emotion was just too Muppety. I thought it would be a better movie if it was Muppets. Like of all the movies, like I hate that we just answered that goddamn question. I know. And shooting the flames and I would have been like, possession, possession, possession. Because yeah. this movie begs to be played by Kermit and Miss Piggy. It really does. So I mean, and it like, would be less over the fucking top. I'm like, I, I'm I, you. Any given dialogue scene in this fucking movie is so over the top. It just like begs to be laughed at, and it's like I can't deal with it. I can't take it seriously when it's taking itself too seriously. If it even just had a tone adjustment based on that over the topness, I probably would have appreciated it more as like a B movie or something. And mm-hmm. some critics that actually liked it mentioned that we mentioned we saw several critics mention that it takes itself too seriously. It's just there's problems all over the place with this movie and how it was just filmed and constructed, not not having anything to do with the acting of it or, or the symbolism or the meaning behind it. It's a mess. It's muddy. It's overrated. Two stars. And uh, Nimble Wembley, like, really, I, I wish that I would have seen this movie before we answered that question on Shooting the Flames because he's right. I originally gave this movie two and a half stars. And again, it was solely for the acting. And I think like deep down in the recesses of my brain, I was like, okay, there's got to be something here that I'm just not getting, right? Or or maybe like it's lost on me. Maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand this movie. And I walked away from it thinking, no, that's not the case. Like it's just not accessible in ways that it should be. I raised my rating to three stars because of the acting still. I feel yeah. like between Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny, like the acting is superb in this movie. Like I really did enjoy that subway scene. And I was just like, this is a really good acting moment. This is her fucking Oscar clip, you know? Yeah. And that's actually kind of an interesting microcosm of how we rate films, right? You're much more about the human aspect, uh, the people. I'm, uh, I tend to, to be a little bit colder in my ratings towards the technical, you know, and uh, I, I, I totally see your rating and appreciate it. And it validates exactly the things that I said. Mm-hmm. And I still feel like three stars is a legitimate rating for this film with all your complaints. I, yeah, I don't I don't think that it's necessarily a terrible movie. I just think that it could be better. Um, mm-hmm. And like from the technical standpoints, you're right, because you, you mentioned it while watching the movie, like music would cue and you'd be like, now music. Yes. And it's just like and it, did <laughs> dawn, it d- didn't dawn on me. I was like, you're right. This movie has been silent from a score <laughs> standpoint, like for half its runtime. And I'm like, know. you're right. I don't even know how I'm going to score like the synopsis or like what the trailer is going to be like because like no i can't idea. remember what this music sounds like and it's it's not very often no. that we like don't talk about a score in a movie it's more like a soundscape than a, than a score yeah. right well and i think like the it's like a film scape rather than an actual movie you know <laughs> so like like i think there's some really really good things here but earlier when you said you'd like to see a remake of this i 100 percent agree with that i feel like there's there's yeah. some good bones here and i think with a different kind of director or just a different director period, you might be able to make a movie that makes more sense or a different director to take that vision from the screenplay. He was like too close to it. You know, it's like, yes. And it's not like we can't list the things like it's, Oh, we just can't put our finger on it, but it could have been better. You know, we could make like a fucking treatise, Mm -hmm. like a manifesto with lists of everything that we would make better about this movie specifically. So, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And again, 
you know, we don't want to yuck anyone's yum. Yeah. Uh, this is just our opinions. That's true. But you took the words right out of my mouth. He was too close to his fucking screenplay. Yeah. You need to give it to someone else to make yep. this done. Storyboard it. Give it to somebody else. Whatever the fuck. I don't care. Finally, and some would say, who cares about this? Uh, who's the hottest guy in possession? <laughs> Sam Neill. Sam Neill. Yeah. With brown contacts. He was surprisingly foxy in this movie. <laughs> like, not Heinrich, which, although, like, just if, if the character of Heinrich existed in real life. Well, it's like, who's the hottest and who's the sexiest are two different questions. I would totally bone Heinrich just because I can imagine, like. It's a fuck, Mary kill situation. Yeah. How fun would it be to hang out with that character? Like, you never know what the fuck he's going to do, like, randomly, like, do kung fu and then talk about, like, the existence of God and how it means to you and then have, like, amazing tantric sex. I'm like, sure, yeah, I'd date him. But Sam Neill's, like, randomly very attractive in this movie. So. I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Possession. Uh, we would very much like to know what you think about this movie and our conversation about it. Find us on social media at the Foam Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, all the things. Or you could email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Oh, I'm feeling possessed with too many S's. Give me that turkey knife. <laughs> <laughs> turkey knife. Stick that meat in my grinder. <laughs> they were grinding. So there's everything. kitchen violence in this movie. <laughs> what? Why were they grinding so much meat? I don't know. <laughs> Bob, okay. is, Bob is hungry. I know. <laughs> uh, we have more breakup or sort of like end of relationship conversation to have next week when we talk about it follows which is a little bit more about uh being possessed by an external force much more of a straight line plot yeah (laughs) but yet about the end of a really short relationship that's right so um and we have something on patreon so Head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers to find out what romantic esque horror movie we're going to be talking about over there. And when you find out, let us know. That's right. <laughs> we're bound to choose it now at any moment. Well, Robert. Yes, Chris. I think I'm about ready to throw myself into a subway tunnel and freak out so I can get some sweet dreams. <laughs> I'm feeling many tentacled and hentai right now. <laughs> Possession 2. Secret of the Ooze. <laughs> the song by Vanilla Eyes. <laughs>